0: Hey, Jason, I got a dad joke for you. Oh, (laughs) let's hear it, Q. What did the limestone say to the geologist?
1: I have no idea.
0: Don't take me for (laughs) granted. Play the music.
1: Yeah, please.
0: Welcome to Pot of the Planet, a podcast about our changing earth and what we're doing to manage that change. I'm Q Lee and I'm joined by Jason Smearden. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Q? So I also wanted to take a little bit of time to do some housekeeping with this podcast and explain the format to our our audience, our ever-growing audience, uh, which I'm sure will be tuning in very soon. We're going to spend 10 minutes, uh, this first 10 minutes, just talking about current events, talking about... Um, what's going on in our lives maybe, and telling some bad dad jokes every now and then
1: <laughs> we've got plenty uh, of those
0: <laughs> and, um, and then the meat of the podcast for about 20 minutes will be an interview with one of our guests, uh, someone from the earth Institute or, or beyond and talking about sustainability issues, climate change and, and all of the above. And then the last part of the podcast, just for about five minutes or so, are going to be devoted to the audience and people who listen to the podcast. And we call it You Asked the Podcast. Or Actually, that's not really the name yet. We haven't really come up with the name. But uh, essentially, it's an opportunity to answer questions from from people who are are listening. And you can ask those questions at podoftheplanet at gmail.com. So in this uh, edition of Pod of the Planet, we're going to be talking about disasters and how to be better prepared for them, uh, what the Earth Institute and more specifically, the National Center on Disaster Preparedness is all about, all the amazing research that they're doing there. But before we get into that, uh, Jason, um, I was actually thinking about you the other day. I was was watching (laughs) this TV show uh, with my wife. It's, It's on HBO. It's called Big Little Lies. Have you heard of that? I've heard
1: of it, but I haven't seen.
0: it. Okay, the the first season was really good. The second season, not so much. Um, and uh, we're not actually sponsored by HBO, just so <laughs> you know. <laughs>
1: I want to know why you were thinking <laughs> me while you were watching
0: it. <laughs> so it, it was actually kind of funny. Um, it, at one uh, one of the episodes, it, w- it was centered around the 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 child of one of the mothers, and um, the child that it was. Uh, uh, I think maybe first or second grade. And the uh, episode focused on how this child came back home one day after school and was uh, had a bit of a traumatic experience. Apparently they had been teaching the classroom about global warming. Okay. <laughs> and, it, it, and the parent with through some parents into a bit of an outrage and they got into this uh, uh, spat with with the teachers and the principal. And on one side, the teachers are saying how... You know, it's important for children to know this, to, to know this stuff, because this is reality of the world that we're, we're living in. And of course, the parents are on the side trying to protect the children's sensibilities and, and protect their emotions, et cetera, et cetera. So I was just thinking you being a professor and us being parents of <laughs> of uh of kids do you feel like you have like a a threshold or an age range when you'll be able to talk to your your kids about (laughs) global warming
1: that's that's a tough question sometimes sometime before the birds and the bees presumably (laughs) uh i haven't broached that we're still just dealing with uh you know conventional monsters at this point how Um, old is how old are your kids uh my daughter is four and my son is two okay i wanted to
0: talk a little bit about us being parents and parents of young kids. in, in, and thinking about disasters and being prepared for them. Uh, I mean, how, how are you prepared for disasters? Do you, do you, do you go through the same level of paranoia that I do every day?
1: Yeah. And it probably, and it changes when you have kids. I mean, I think my disaster plan as a resident of New York city before I had kids was just stockpiling as much whiskey as possible. Okay. Um, (laughs) Obviously uh, your plans become more important when you have kids. That was my plan even before I knew about (laughs) global warming and, and the like.
0: Hurricane Sandy came through here. What, what, what year was that now? 2012. 2012. What, 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 where were you when Hurricane Sandy happened?
1: <laughs> I, I was, uh, in my apartment here on the Upper West Side, uh, across from Columbia in, in this neighborhood called Morningside Heights. Um, how about you? Where, what part of the city you live in Q? At the time I was in the Upper West Side, uh, with my
0: current wife, back then girlfriend, partner, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we were, we, were we in similar situations?
1: Must've been, I mean, uh, both in terms of the storm, we're both up here on the ever west side. It sounds like, right. uh, we were both checked shady. in with our loved ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wasn't checked in with my loved one. I was on the phone with, uh, my, uh, my, who was my girlfriend at the time, but ultimately became my partner. And, uh, kind of weathering the storm over the phone. Right. Wait, so where was she? She was actually on the lower East side. Uh, she was a resident at uh, Bellevue hospital at the time and, uh, lived fairly close to the hospital. And, um, our experience with the storm was actually, we were on the phone and she lost power. And so she had to get off and actually help a neighbor. And shortly after that, because we had power, we didn't lose power, uh, around Columbia. Um, I was looking around online and and they were reporting that Bellevue hospital was evacuating. It was wow. one of the hospitals they evacuated. Right. Uh, and so I called her back up and asked her if she knew about it and she didn't. Um, and she sort of got prepared to run out into the storm and head up to Bellevue to help with the evacuation, which she did. But one of the things that stuck with me and and often makes me think about you know preparedness and information and the importance of information during disasters is that as she was making her way to the hospital, I was checking online which f- uh, streets had flooded on mm-hmm. the way to the hospital and was trying to direct her to go down the streets that weren't flooded so that she could get there. You're giving her like real time <laughs> updates, like a traffic controller or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, to, that's what it's Try to
0: steer her through the the width. Streets of New York City.
1: That's what it amounted to, but uh, and so it was a, it was an interesting personal experience, more much more so for her than for me. But uh, also speaks to the importance of real time information during a disaster. So I'm kind of like picturing you on the phone and saying, "No, make a left here, make a her right there," and no, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it worked. And then and then we hung up, and and uh, she sort of disappeared into the disaster, and I actually didn't hear from her for <laughs> quite a while uh, because oh, no. it yeah. was it was quite a bit of work uh, to to evacuate. The hospital and
0: yeah, and it was absolutely a, a scary few days there. And I had I have relatives and cousins in different parts of the city, some in Brooklyn. And I was looking at some of those flooding maps as well, and and seeing how you know you had to evacuate if you lived in these zones, or and, and the zones seem to keep on getting bigger, moving to different right. streets. And so yeah, it was definitely a scary time. And and me personally, I was uh, turning forty uh, at that around that time, and and all of my um, wonderful karaoke birthday plans were canceled. And so it left a quite a memorable experience for me. And then that I've been trying to um, relive every year since (laughs) with
1: much failure. But some of us (laughs) made greater or smaller sacrifices during the storm. (laughs) That's for sure. But I I think it was true also for those of us living up here uh, that were minimally affected. It was almost like a lot of the damaged areas were in a different country. I remember watching the news and just not believing that that was, you know, a mile away from where I was, which had wind damage, but otherwise nothing really to speak of. So
0: even before that point, did you feel like you were well-prepared or, I mean, you know, we're here at the Earth Institute and anyone should understand (laughs) the implications of what a Superstorm Sandy was, what was going to happen. Or, I mean, I, I, I didn't feel like that I was that well-prepared. I mean, I didn't go outside and I knew how bad it could be, but as far as, um, you know, what actually happened and, and what the city went through, uh, it, it was I mean, obviously really shocking.
1: I, I did take precautions. You know, I I was somebody who said, no, this is, you know, I think there was a an attitude among some New York residents this isn't gonna be so bad. And right. I was um, you know, mentioning that no, it really could be bad. And um so I took precautions, but probably not what was needed to maintain you know, self-sufficiency for days and days and days. And we were, of course, very lucky up around Columbia where the damage was minimal. We still had power. What happened for me was there was a big migration to the northern end of Manhattan. So I had a lot of uh, (laughs) storm refugees in my apartment. (laughs) Uh, But we were so functional up here. that uh, Meaning
0: you went through your stockpile of whiskey very quickly. Exactly.
1: Glad I had stockpiled. All right.
0: (laughs) And for the next uh, storm, are you going to be better prepared for that one?
1: you know, one thing that I did take away from Sandy that uh, hadn't occurred to me beforehand was to have some cash on hand, you know, Mm -hmm. with the power out down uh, in lower Manhattan, people couldn't get cash and and cash machines and so on. And if you need that kind of stuff in an emergency, it's good to have that kind of thing on hand.
0: So yes, our, our individual disaster plans and experiences are important to us, but there are clearly bigger things happening here at the Earth Institute. And our next segment with Jeff Slagomelch will um, identify those and and run through the the different things that are that are happening.
1: Yeah, I think you know what Jeff I'm sure articulates uh, what I heard uh, of the interview is that of course there's these individual disaster plans, but there's so much more to do uh, planning within our communities at the state and national level for responding to these disasters, and that's of course a vital aspect of how we plan for disasters, how we mitigate the worst possible outcomes uh, within disasters. And so they play a very vital role in thinking about how best to to plan for the worst. Great. Jason, it's been great. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Okay. I look forward to talk to you next time. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.
0: I'm joined by Jeff Schlegelmich, Deputy Director of the uh, National Center for uh, Disaster Preparedness and I just wanted to first ask you probably the most important question you're going to be asked this year. Did I pronounce your name correctly?
2: So as a, as a matter of policy, I always say yes. No matter <laughs> how it's pronounced, well, well, I always say yes.
0: Well, that, here's <laughs> the thing. Um, so my background's in journalism and one of my editors from many, many years ago, you know, he used to say, uh, you could kick me and you could beat me, but just make sure you spell my name correctly. Yeah. But I think in podcasts, we should Make sure we say everyone's
2: name correctly, or at least how they like it to be said. So yeah, yeah. how do you say it? So um, it's pronounced uh, Slegemelch. Slegemelch.: Yeah. So you were very okay. close and it's wow. not exactly pronounced how it would be pronounced in Germany. So it's like this Midwestern post-Americanization pronunciation, but okay. they kept all the letters. So. And I was practicing it uh, before you got here.
0: Okay. Slugamilch. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Awesome. So uh, Jeff, uh, it's, it's great to have you. I've been sort of circling you for years now, but we've never really had a, a good full-on conversation. Um, you know, I, I admire your writing and 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 all the stuff that you put out in uh, in the Hill and and all the other publications and your media appearances. So thank you for joining us.
2: No, thank you for having me. Really, uh, really appreciate being here. So the National Center
0: for Disaster Preparedness, um, I think is a, I mean it's a place. Uh, first of all, it's part of Columbia, part of the Earth Institute, and I I, I consider it a place that really embodies. Uh, the Earth Institute as a whole, you take a multidisciplinary approach and you have a real world sort of impact on, on things that are happening. Um, and what I asked you to do before you got here today is, uh, to prepare a, uh, a haiku And, and just for everyone, this is the first haiku that's, uh, been prepared for this podcast. So just to explain, um, essentially we're asking all the, you know, the people that we're interviewing to, uh, together a haiku about either their work or an abstract or a paper, just uh, just to get a sense of uh, what what's in their head and, and, and what's going on. So, if you wouldn't mind, do you want to
2: just read your haiku, or do you have it? I, I don't have it in front of me. I do okay. have it in my heart. But if you have the words, I have I it can. right here. Great. All right. Hope everyone's ready. This is the bar to which all other interviews exactly. will be measured. Okay. Research to impact needed for problems today. Disasters won't wait did i get the syllable count right nice i think you know i didn't even count
0: it but i just liked uh, hearing it even if it was right uh five seven five right haiku. yeah yeah that was good um and uh, whether we put that some music or some sort of you know ominous sounds tones we'll we'll figure that out Definitely later in reverb the, but yeah. anyway thank you for that um research the impact uh, needed for problems today disasters won't wait absolutely okay should we break it down a little bit <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think you said it, you know, with our center is that uh, we're very um impact oriented. Um and uh, you know, it's really a large part of what drew me to the center um is uh is that you know, it this it this rich tradition of of taking the best available research and in some cases we're conducting and generating that research, but in all cases we're trying to take the research out there for disasters and apply it to contemporary problems in disaster policy and disaster practice. That can be through trainings through the media outputs through policy discussions through various advisory roles former formal and informal um that our director Dr. Redliner, has as well as others um but um but that's always sort of what we're looking for is that it, it it's a great thing to have a better understanding of what um causes disasters but it's an even greater thing to be able to use that knowledge to contribute to improve the outcomes for those directly affected and yep. indirectly affected
0: and and I want to get to the um, the actual work of the center and and that and you're involved with uh, in a, in a bit. But first, I would ask how does how does one get into disaster management, or is that how you describe it?
2: You know, I I always think back to this Dilbert comic where someone was the uh, um like the director of Green or director of Green initiatives, and Dilbert asked them, well, how does someone become or the director or vice president of Green? And they say, well, it's it's easy. You start out as director of something else, and okay. then you screw up. Okay, so they. <laughs> No, um, I, I, of course I'm joking there, but it's it's interesting. You know, some people come into this field um, from the perspective of disasters and and there are more and more advanced degree programs, particularly post 9-11 that actually specialize in emergency management studies. But, um, but the reality is that disasters are so distributed in terms of their impact to a community, in terms of the um, types of expertise required to bring it all together, much like sustainable development and right. the broader um, Earth Institute. So you have folks who, uh, develop their expertise in a lot of different areas within our center. We have folks, um, from a background of, um, uh, adult learning theory, teachers college, some graduates from there. We have folks from the environmental sciences. We have folks from public health and from medicine. Uh, my background is in public health. Okay. Um, at least that's the last thing I did before disasters. I started out in the theater. Mm-hmm. So there was, a, <laughs> uh, an interesting transition there, but that, um,
0: which is why you're so good at reading haikus.
2: Exactly. Hey, it's, you know, it's all in the training. But um, a lot of the folks we've worked with, particularly from the scientific fields, sort of found this calling for, you know, how can their work have an impact? How can it have an impact when it's most needed? And the disaster field is, um, is a very inviting forum for folks to do that.
0: Is another word for that calling uh, paranoia or my kind of overstating that? I, don't, I mean, do you feel like you need to have a healthy dosage of paranoia to, to do what you do?
2: Yeah. You know, I, um, you know, I think everybody approaches it differently. I'm one of those folks where I tend to seek out more knowledge Mm -hmm. for something that I'm, uh, uh, and I find more knowledge to be soothing. Um, uh, you know, (laughs) I mean,
0: I don't want to impart like how I feel uh, on you because if, if I had to think about disasters every every day, I I think I'd kind of go a bit crazy. I mean, I I remember I grew up, I grew up in the eighties, right. And the eighties were a time of Fear of nuclear war and destruction, and the big movie I remember coming out at that time was um this movie called the day after mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've ever seen it um, but it it mean it really freaked me out and yeah. and then it, to the point where i I remember um making sure that my window was unlocked uh, and that I could have, easily jump out the window and jump on a bike and then ride wherever I know grab my my backpack that had my knife and my matches and I was also a boy scout so anyway, this is all to say i mean <laughs> paranoia is a big part of our culture, right? But I mean, how do you, how do you um, sort of acknowledge that? How do you work with that? How does that fit into what you do?
2: Yeah. And I, I think that that's where, you know, um, I think back to the days post nine eleven when a disaster that sort of the current age of disaster science really emerged. And and I don't mean to take any credit away. There were groups, the Delaware Disaster Center and others who were doing research that preceded that event, but that certainly brought it into everyone's consciousness and into Um, Brought a lot of funding and resources as well. Um, But to get to your point, I mean, I think that, that there is a lot of paranoia and there are certainly folks drawn to the field because of the adrenaline, because of the extremes that we deal with. But I think that also, you know, when you get past that, you also... Um, have these really complex systems that are very rich in terms of the different contributors to how disasters play out, right. both in terms of the threat, what's causing the disaster, but also our underlying vulnerability, right. um, where we choose to build, how we choose to build, um, how inequalities play out in disasters. And what you end up with is a lens in which to understand society as a whole um, and the way that it comes together under these sort of extreme pressures. And I, I would say too, that, you know, for me, it's really that, that, that puzzle that, that, um, deepening the understanding of who we are, Mm. um, and, uh, why we are the way we are that disasters is just a really, really fascinating lens that through greater understanding, we can have a very positive impact. And I'd also say that I think a lot of folks are also drawn into disasters as many for the paranoia as also, and possibly more for the, um, the, the, the pleasant surprises, the stories of heroism, A, a colleague of ours, Suzanne Bernier, um, has the, uh, um, Disaster Heroes, she wrote this book, Disaster Heroes, mm-hmm. and is doing a lot of work around really ordinary people who emerge in disasters. Right. And and these stories of, of kind of unexpected heroism that really bring out the best. And for a field that's usually mired in negativity, yep. there's a tremendous amount of positivity and uh, celebration that I think is needed. And we have those examples that light the way of where, um, where we're really discovering something new in a good way about how we can uh, overcome some of the challenges that we face.
0: Talking about those heroes or those examples that light the way, 2012, Hurricane Sandy
2: through were you, were you here in New York city? Where were you? I was with the uh, Yale New Haven health system and their kind of system information center doing some coordination there okay. in Southern Connecticut.
0: So, so you were obviously well aware of uh, what was going on in, in the East coast.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And we were doing some work with New York city um, at the time. Uh, so we were also had a lot of partners and things there. So it, for a lot of different reasons um, we were very, very actively engaged.
0: So in the aftermath of Sandy, We were really fortunate living in the Upper West Side and it was nothing like what had happened to the worst hit areas of the city. And I wanted to do some volunteer work, uh, just not only to help, but to experience some of the devastation that had happened. So I came across this group called Occupy Sandy, which I guess had modeled itself after Occupy Wall Street. Uh And when I went to their staging area located in Brooklyn, I was asked to caravan some volunteers and to bring some supplies to an area in Coney Island in Brooklyn. And when we arrived, the organizers there had broken us up, the volunteers, into groups asking us essentially to visit the high-rise buildings that were, had lost power in the area. Mm-hmm. And the, with the intention of checking in on the people who lived there and to make sure that they had water and medication and any other supplies that they might need. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, this was an amazing experience, and for me at least. And so, looking back now, and when we talk about emerging heroes from disasters, I was always amazed by what Occupy Sandy was able to accomplish. And I had always wondered exactly how did they know what to do? And uh, can you talk a little bit about ad hoc groups like Occupy Sandy and their importance uh, immediately following a disaster?
2: Yeah, so <clears throat> we've uh, observed this and actually integrated into some of the work that we've done with. um some disaster philanthropy after Hurricane Harvey and after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, is sort of this recognition that there are these community-based groups that emerge after disasters. And they're usually emerging because there's a need and because there's a need that's not being met by more formal response structures. Mm-hmm. This is was actually described decades ago. So uh, uh, disaster researcher Russell Dines from the Delaware Disaster Research Center <clears throat> observed uh, this notion of uh, emergent behavior in disasters. And he says these four types of the emergent behavior. So your type one are like your emergency management agencies, your first responders Mm -hmm. are kind of built for this. Your type twos are ones that are maybe an extension of what you're doing already. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to think of hospitals in that category. You have an emergency department, but you also have other stuff that's going on Mm -hmm. and your type threes and your type fours tend to be these community based organizations that all of a sudden are either taking on an entirely new mission Mm -hmm. Like, uh, uh, faith based groups that may be doing distribution or may not have even existed before the disaster, like Occupy Sandy. Yeah. Uh, there's a group in, um, Rockport, Texas, the Rockport Relief Camp that was actually um, this woman's property that was spared from the hurricane, although her business was destroyed, ended up becoming this impromptu relief camp and then organized itself around donations. And it, it really emerged because it provided a space that wasn't otherwise available for folks to seek shelter and, and set up camp and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, we we actually wrote a bit about this because the um, Type 1 and Type 2 organizations tend to be very well positioned to harvest the resources and the funding that comes in after a disaster, whether they're government or large nonprofits, they're sort of set up to anticipate the way that money comes in, how it comes in, the restrictions that are coming in. But they also bring a lot of inertia in in how they move and what they do. And they're not always as quick to be able to respond to local nuances mm-hmm. and and changes in procedures that have been vetted through legal departments and things like that. Uh, so these community-based actors end up being very, very critical in both responding to unmet need, but also in having a long-term footprint in the community. And that's what we've seen with our work, um, uh, particularly in Puerto Rico, where we we had a, a, a much larger um, footprint with the uh, philanthropy we were assisting, or still are assisting. And seeing groups sort of using that funding to not only meet the immediate needs of the community, but also to build a capacity to uh, receive funds Mm -hmm. from other organizations and create a longer term set of services because they're there for the long term. The other piece that I'll add is that, you know, it's also... This isn't just sort of logic that's dictating this. A lot of this research has looked at sort of what are the social bonds within a community um, and some of the work of Daniel Aldrich after Japan's 311 disasters. Right? And after Katrina, as well as many other researchers out there looking at so- social cohesion, social capital, neighbors helping neighbors. And again, this is a situation where um, in many cases, many, many lives were saved particularly in japan during the tsunami of elderly residents because of people uh kind of doing the opposite of what they were supposed to do they came in to check on their neighbors they came mm. in they knew that someone was vulnerable and came in to check on them and they right. ended up being the difference literally between life and death of a lot of these folks i see yeah so the the need the impact uh can't really be overstated but the way we have structured our response kind of top down oftentimes although not always kind of loses sight of of community-based actors of emergent actors is an important and oftentimes life-sustaining resource um, in the aftermath of disasters.
0: So then Occupy Sanding, are they still around in some meaningful way that you know of, or these emergent sort of groups, once they emerge in subsequent disasters, are they, is it easier for them to organize or do you know of how they're, I guess, I don't know called upon when, when needed?
2: So it's, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, so I've seen two different ways. So I mentioned in Puerto Rico are some of these community-based organizations have sort of gone from like a type three or type four to a type two. They've sort of, um, using the dynes typology they've, they've, um, they've, they've emerged and that they've leveraged that to actually, they see a long-term need. So they've built a long-term mm-hmm. capacity. They're there to stay right. other groups. I'm not I don't know where Occupy Sandy stands today. Okay. Um, it's kind of like Batman. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't mean the
2: but, but also the, uh, the Rockport Relief Camp in, in Texas is, is, is sort of on a, it, it was a time limited engagement. And, right. and I remember speaking with, with uh, Sam, the person who um, founded and ran and it's her property um, saying that, you know, I'm, I'm in it for X amount of time. Right. And then it has to transition back to the nonprofit, back to the other communities. And um, as she was talking to me about this, I remember thinking, one, you don't hear about this much from nonprofits. It's always about where you're going to get the next grant from, right. where you're going to get it. Um, because that's just the business model of, 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 um, of that particular sector. But then I realized that it also just freed her up mm. to focus on the need, in the aftermath of the disaster with all of without all of that extra burden of having to build and maintain and sustain a nonprofit into the long term. Mm. Um, so, so I think that, that these emergent actors, because they emerge usually by the community to meet the needs of the community, they're able to adapt and, and even go away. Um, as -hmm. those needs change, whereas folks in the disaster industry, uh, that are employing people full-time long-term to go to different disasters, um, very important, very noble work, um, but a different model and one that doesn't have that same, uh, flexibility. So there's a lot, I think we have to understand about the dynamics of those emergent actors, but we do know enough to know how, at, at least that they're incredibly vital and incredibly important to, um, Um, survivors of a disaster. Well, it's great to know that they're there and it's very reassuring to me at least. So. Absolutely. And finding better ways to integrate them also. And this is um, just just one more, but you know, this was something where, you know, after Katrina, where you had folks with their own boats willing to go into, into New Orleans to Mm. rescue folks. And Mm. FEMA was of a mindset of, you know, let's get everything under control before we let outside groups in. Mm. And, And of course that didn't work. (laughs) Right, <laughs> the uh, But then they changed and became more embracing of these emergent actors. And that's where you see things emerge like the Cajun Navy, which have become a major right. staple in the disaster response to take good hearted, good capacity individuals. And instead of trying to hold them at arm's length and, and use up resources to keep them away from the response is to actually integrate them in a more managed way and take advantage of the capacities that they're bringing to the that's table. So I, I think that that's a, um, a small example of ways that we can better leverage and resource and capitalize on these emergent actors. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about the
0: real work of NCDP. One of your programs, the Resilient Children and Resilient uh, Communities Initiative. Mm-hmm. I know you guys have a very big focus on on children and, and vulnerable sort of people, uh, populations within uh, within the group. So do you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Absolutely. So this, this project started, um, I guess, about four years ago now. It's actually through... Um, a uh, uh, corporate social responsibility funding from GSK, uh, okay. GlaxoSmithKline. Smith, um, Klein, and um, it started as a partnership with Save the Children. We were working in two communities, and we had so much research on children as uh, as bellwethers of recovery. That if you want to know how our community is doing after a disaster, it's really imprinted on the children. Yep. And um, partly because children are connected with so many different sectors of society, more than just their parents. Most they're they're at school, they're in childcare providers, but also indirectly if their parents can't work, if there are pressures at home and they're um and children also can't advocate for themselves. They can't go to a city council meeting and you say and say, you know, I'm really worried about, you know, the disruption of my education in second grade. It's very you know, they require on other people to advocate for them, but are often either left out of planning or kind of lumped into special populations planning. I'm doing air quotes for folks who (laughs) um aren't one of the two background. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'll do jazz hands later. But the um uh, so, but the idea was okay we we've got a lot of studies out after Katrina after sandy you know we're we're getting really good at describing this um and understanding this. How can we start to improve this outcome in and, a more direct way
0: and and when we're talking about i know uh, children and and, the, and vulnerable groups like like children the the added layer of complexities between um the different type of disasters that that occur and and mm-hmm. the different regions i mean you know kind of trying to weave all these things into policies out there i mean you have to be specific to specific places to specific types of disasters or can you is there like one
2: big area that you're sort of looking at to try to acknowledge a lot of these things that are happening so um so yes and no so it, it, the foundation of emergency planning is is function-based and then scenario-based so what you do is you lay out these different functions these things that happen all the time, no matter the disaster. And that's all hazards planning. Mm. Um, and so there are certain things like the, the mental health impacts of disruption of normalcy to children is something that you you'll see in virtually any disaster. Mm. Um, a great, many disasters, you see disruption to living, you see sheltering and things like that, although not all of them. And then you go into scenario specific, and this is something where, you know, in, a. um, uh, uh, mold damage in a home is going to amplify some of these specific things. So, so in all planning, you're sort of looking at that. What are the commonalities across disasters for your all hazards planning? And then gotcha. when you get into specific hazards and you start thinking, what can we pull out? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, in working in these two communities, we really started from an all hazards perspective. We started in, in Putnam County, New York, and Washington County, Arkansas, looking to build preparedness systems. Um, and with that, when I say we, it's really the our partners in the community, in these community resilience coalitions that brought together the child-serving infrastructure with the emergency management and first responder infrastructure. Okay, We um, help guide them through the process. I like to say we take the research, we take the best practices, we lay out a buffet of options, mm-hmm. but it's really up to the community where they want to eat, where they feel they can get the most traction, things like that. So we're, we're very careful to listen and, and follow the community's lead as they, we provide decision support, they provide the decisions. Because ultimately you
0: feel like the success of whatever it is it's done is dependent on what the community sort
2: yeah, of involvement is in. Exactly. And, and frankly, there's so much that needs to be done. If a community feels it's more ready and more appropriate and better leveraged to start in one place and another feels in another, there's, there's plenty of work to do. So where they get started should really be based on where they feel there's the greatest need and energy.
0: So let's talk about Puerto Rico and some specific
2: examples uh, that are going on. Maria came through Puerto Rico. Yeah. So in, in phase two of this project, what we've done is we've, we're working with, um, which is the phase we're in now, we're working with communities in um, North Carolina affected by Hurricane Florence and in Puerto Rico affected by Hurricane Maria. And the idea was, so we're working to build resilience pre-disaster, but now in disaster recovery, there's this notion, how do we build back stronger? Mm. Um, and we're working with partners in um, two communities in Puerto Rico, in Mayaguez and Humacao, as well as through a central task force based in San Juan. And that's administered through the, the Youth Development Institute, the Instituto de la, de la Juventud. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Took a while to, to um, uh get the flow anyway um and then with uh, uh communities and schools in Cape Fear uh which is based in New Hanover County in uh where Hurricane Florence made landfall in North Carolina and then right. further inland in Robeson County also with communities and schools and they're really sort of the hub that are bringing together the other community members emergency management schools um healthcare sort of all the different groups that, uh, that affect children um so with uh Puerto Rico in particular so we've been working there with um you know helping to Um, one, get a lot of the materials we've developed in the first phases translated into Spanish, but then also to, um, be responsive to, you know, we're in this situation now where we're both trying to build preparedness for the next hurricane season, but there's also ongoing recovery efforts and where can we be beneficial with the recent earthquakes that have occurred in Puerto Rico. Um, we've seen a lot of, um, uh, uh, residual trauma from Hurricane Maria, a lot of sort of, um, mental health issues that have, um, kind of been dormant, really reemerge with folks there. And so we've seen a lot of requests from our partners to accelerate some of the translation, which we've done and which we've provided of some um, resources on what to expect from children, um, what are common signs of trauma, um, as well as some educational materials and some planning templates that we have in English that we now have available in Spanish as well, too.
0: So talking about your partners, can you explain a bit about the role of I? just government and, and what it plays in all this, uh, levels of government, municipalities, state, federal, I mean.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually, I was, I was, um, talking with a colleague in the, the, um, federal government, um, about some of the things in, and Puerto Rico is a great example because yeah. Puerto Rico's sort of been,
0: um. Especially when you have a place like Puerto Rico that's being somewhat shunned, obviously, and, and, and re- I don't know, outright rejected by our current government, uh,
2: Yeah. There's a lot of politics, both at the sort of state level or territorial level within Puerto Rico. Mm. And there's been a lot of dysfunction that we've seen with the um, resignation of one governor and a lot of sort of, and it's always been a very polarized political environment when one party comes in and and sort of removing all trace of the others and vice versa. Um, But then to have this additional animosity between the Trump administration and um, the um, uh, folks trying to get things done on the island of Puerto Rico. So um, on the one hand, sort of, uh, first pulling the politics out of it government is really there to facilitate um it's optimized to facilitate the public sector which is only a small part of the resources that come to bear and it's starting to more and more reach out to the private sector mm. um it's always had some relationships with the nonprofit sector but it's been it, it was sort of originally rooted in the logistics game how do you get stuff to where it's needed and now It's blossomed into a whole community and trying to leverage community partners, which has made it more holistic, but also much more complex. And again, this is all over the last 15 years. So this is in its infancy, um, really, and even the longer research that occurred before 9-11, we're still talking 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. 75 years ago, you know, and, and the, um, uh, half-life of science, it's still very, very young, um, But then you start interweaving the politics in this. And then you sort of have a, you know, you have a a constitutional democracy, a federalist democracy where the feds can't go into a state without permission from the state. And then a lot of these are home rule where the communities then have to invite the state in. So you have this, these pathways that the government resources can't get through without certain protocols being followed. So do you guys play a role in, I guess, clearing that path? Or I mean, is that? We we try to. I mean, one of the biggest advantages of being a university is we're not. Uh, we don't have to adhere to those rules uh, um, that that a federal agency can or that others can. Mm-hmm. And so what we can do is we can, um, now we respect the, the chains of command and the lines of authority. I, I should be clear about that. Yep. But we can work with community partners and we can go into a community and if we have willing partners where we can provide value, we can move on that and then back into the state, back into the federal right. government. And so what we've on this project been doing is really using that as an opportunity to amplify the voice of the communities and to help communicate the needs, whether it's up to the state level or up to the federal level, okay. to both celebrate what works, but also identify how these policies may be restricting the flow of aid um, so that it's a more robust conversation happening at the national level okay. um, by by elevating the voices of our partners. In the yeah. Communities. I mean, I, I find what you guys do um, so fascinating in that that respect that when we have
0: changes in administration and governments and or when government sort of fails us in, in certain respects, how do you step in and, and come up with a new way of to make something work? That, because obviously what's the most, most important thing is that we ha- you get aid and, and, and
2: relief to the places that need it uh, right then and there without trying to cut through all the tape. And- so so we've been doing some other work led more by um, some other folks that I've been involved with, but um, Dr. Redliner has been more in the leadership role with um, Hurricane Harvey in Texas and in Puerto Rico through with the uh, Somos Nervos Foundation. Yep. So in Texas, uh, Paul Simon and Edie Brakel, um gave a million dollars to Texas Relief. And the Somos Nervos Foundation gave uh, several million dollars um, through a concert um, uh, that uh, singer-songwriter Mark Anthony held in Puerto Rico. And we were involved in both cases. Uh, I shouldn't say were, we still are involved in both cases, but particularly in Puerto Rico um, because it was a much, much larger amount of funds. And establishing a process to identify where that money would go Mm -hmm. um, and where it could have the most good. And so part of what we're doing here is identifying who is emerging within the community to meet the unmet needs, to get to address things that the money coming from the top down isn't getting to for one reason or another. Um, A lot of money that comes from federal sources has a lot of rules. A lot of large NGOs have a lot of policies that kind of restrict from doing certain things and there's enough need elsewhere so they steer it there. Um, and so what we've done is we've focused primarily on what are these community-based organizations that are there for the long haul that are emerging to meet these unmet needs um, but may not be well positioned to harvest some of the funding coming from more traditional sources. And so we've um, worked to direct a lot of this less restricted funding into those areas that, that were less likely to get funding otherwise.
0: And, and going back to Houston and, and Harvey and, and uh, there was this interesting article in the Times about you know, GOP states that are now seeking, um, you know, money from the government to, to build more resilient sort of communities and how they're, you know, totally ignoring or issuing the word climate change in their proposals, right? Yeah. I don't know if you saw that, but Texas had some 300 page proposal that did not use the word climate change at all. So it's, I mean, it's a curious kind of thing when, you know, clearly the government can you know, deny the existence of climate change, but not deny the existence of disasters,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah. There's some very careful wordsmithing going on. I remember when FEMA released their new strategic plan, a couple of folks were asking me if I would write something over the absence of the use of the term climate change. And I I opted not to because they were actually incorporating climate change. They just weren't calling it that. They were Mm -hmm. acknowledging the increase in natural disaster or natural hazards um, and disasters caused by natural hazards um mm-hmm. so um you know folks in and um uh, other branches of government are using code words like uh environmental hazards and things like that so um, i'm not familiar with the texas plans um mm-hmm. so i would say at best it's um folks are trying to get it done and it's still embedded in the dna right. of how folks are approaching this but it really is a problem if you can't be honest about the cause if you can't be honest about you know disasters are about the threat and the vulnerability the threat is the bad thing that's happening and the vulnerability is you know we're building in areas that are prone to disaster and if we're if we're not willing to accept our role in the threat then we're not informing our role in the vulnerability mm-hmm. you know we're building in floodplains that are going to get wetter
0: it could be but all the, at the same time it could be a bit of a moral dilemma right if, if someone's not necessarily or if they're forced to not acknowledge the existence of climate change in lieu of uh Receiving yes disaster relief. I mean, where you know, sort of, where do you where do you go from there, or how do you? I mean, yeah, pa- paramount, the most important thing is to help people, right?
2: Yeah, and I have I I, I don't mean to uh, I'm throwing zero shade at the people who sure. are using these code words, right? Sure, sure. Because they're absolutely trying to do the right thing within the context that they're given. Okay. Um, and so I couldn't agree more that that I actually applaud folks who are who are despite the um partisan politics um working to do the right thing for the people that they serve. Um, the problem is, where it is in the partisan politics and um, where um, you know, these words are being disallowed, sometimes explicitly through memos within agencies, don't say these words. Yeah. Um, and it just doesn't allow us to talk about some of the major contributors for the things, for these disasters. And, and disasters in abstract are one thing, but in practice, it's people's lives and their livelihood that can follow them for a generation or more if they're not properly um, uh, met, uh, and if their needs aren't properly met, and we're we're not very good at recovery, we have a lot to learn. We have a lot of systems to change, and we need the full breadth of our vocabulary and of our knowledge base to be able to do that.
0: So, uh, just moving forward, what what disasters or what things have we not paid enough attention to, or, or or things that maybe you know we should be thinking about a bit more? Are there any? Is there anything along those lines that that come to mind, or
2: yeah. So um, I'm glad you mentioned this. I mean, things <laughs> that might
0: creep up on us, for example. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So
2: um, so I have a book coming out, um, full release this fall, but it, it should be out actually in, in initial release as early as um, this summer. Um, and it's actually already available for- Title of the book? For pre-order. It's called um, Rethinking Readiness, um, A Brief Guide to 21st Century Mega Disasters. And this actually started with a concept from our uh, center's director, Dr. Erwin Redliner um, um, had, and he and I talked at, length for this. And he was a, a major part in, in helping to develop the book, um, where there are these five scenarios where human activity is contributing to both the threat and the underlying vulnerability. And so in that, I talk about, um, bio threats, endemics, or we, you know, in some cases we're pressuring, um, uh, antibiotic resistance and the way we administer healthcare and others, you know, with bioweapons programs, but even just with the way we travel, the way we live in closer and closer proximity to, um, animals and things are are increasing the threat i mean coronavirus right now right exactly i mean that's happening yep. as we speak and um uh but then also increases in air travel things like that uh there's a chapter focused on climate change of course um an obvious one where we're building in vulnerable areas and pumping out co2 um infrastructure failure where we have you know we're very dependent on decaying infrastructure we like to cut ribbons but we don't like to maintain things mm-hmm. um cybersecurity which is more and more coming to the forefront and is linked to so many aspects of our life. Right. And uh, nuclear conflict. You know, we thought that this ended when the Cold War ended. It's gone out of a lot of consciousness. Don't say that to me. That's going to bring me back. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But it's also, um, you know, the notion of conflict in the Cold War um, was around sort of this total annihilation of all life on Earth. And actually, although nuclear conflict may be more likely than we realize now, um, Mm -hmm. it's also much more survivable given the kinds of threats that we face. Okay. That's encouraging so, I guess a little. So, in some ways. <laughs> uh, so I encourage folks to read more as it comes out. Um, yeah, we look the, forward to it. Yeah that sounds yeah. great.
0: This has been really cool, and and I'm really glad we got you and there's like so much we could talk about on on so many different you know both on the specific disasters that have happened, the resilience programs that are being built to to acknowledge, you know uh, acknowledge them and, and 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 future disasters that that will happen. And I'm really glad that we had this moment to talk, but we will talk again in in, in a subsequent episode. And I also want to encourage people to tune into your podcast. Uh,
2: What is it called? So it's called Disaster Politics, and we bring on guests from different sectors and and looking at um, how politics, not necessarily partisan politics, but just political processes, political structures influence the way that disasters play out. And that's available on on iTunes, SoundCloud, you know, what, wherever you download podcasts, it's probably on there. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay. In this next section of Pod of the Planet, really happy to introduce this part. We call it You Asked? Mm-hmm. Is that that's what right. we're going to call it? Because that's, that's what, what did, we're calling it. That's what it's called on the State of the Planet blog. That's right. And essentially it is, what would you, how would you describe it?
3: Um, so you asked is a section where we take questions from readers. Um, so it could be someone who reads state of the planet blog and has sent in an email question or somebody who follows us on social media and has submitted a question that way.
0: And we want this to be the audience's part of the podcast where the audience has the opportunity to uh, send feedback, to ask questions, and we'll get an expert opinion to try our best to answer those questions. Um, we have lots of experts, uh, here at the Earth Institute, both running around on campus and through all different parts of the world. So that's all to say that there's probably no answer that we can't come up with. What do you think?
3: Bold statement. I like it. Okay. We do our best.
0: Right. We'll definitely try our best. (laughs) Uh, So with that, Phoebe Pearson uh, is going to be leading this section. Um, Phoebe, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up here at the Earth Institute?
3: Sure. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Phoebe. Um, I've worked here at EI for about a year and a half. And I came from uh, Grow NYC Green Markets before that, where I was managing the publicity for the Union Square Green Market. Okay. Um, if you're not familiar, it's the biggest, I believe, farmer's market on the East Coast. And... Is it really? I think that's true. What yeah. makes
0: it so big? Is it the, just the number of...
3: The sheer number of farmers and producers that are represented there. Okay. Yeah. So... um tons and tons of different farms come from around 200 miles radius around New York city.
0: Okay. So, so did you just take home a lot of stuff? Oh yeah. Okay.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I took home tons of stuff.
0: <laughs> so uh, with that, uh, you know, our, our first question that we're going to talk about today is about garbage bags and uh, are eco-friendly garbage bags, eco-friendly.
3: Um, so the short answer is, is no, um, there's really no such thing as an eco-friendly garbage bag. Um, and darn,
0: I was really hoping.
3: (laughs) And of course there's, there's qualifiers to that. Um, there are bags made from 100% post consumer recycled plastics, which is obviously better than a virgin plastic bag. Mm -hmm. Um, there are compostable bags that you could use for trash. Um, compostable bags tend to be a bit more, uh, less stretchy, I would say. Um, and they can break, they break obviously break down more easily. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people need like very sturdy bags for whatever it is they're throwing away. Um, they don't want the option of it leaking, or breaking it's sort of the opposite of what a garbage bag is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, while compostable sounds really promising, it doesn't actually break down in a landfill the way that you think it will. Um, these compostable bags are really made for high heat industrial composting facilities, which a landfill is not by definition.
0: There are places where you can use uh, compostable bags.
3: Yeah. So compostable bags are by far better than, than plastic Mm -hmm. Um, certified compostable. You know, it it means there is no plastic in that, in that bag material and it won't break down into microplastics eventually. Right. Um, So it's definitely better. Um, But you know, when, when you, let's say you, are already somebody who composts and you take your compost to uh, a drop-off site. Um, They usually don't want those compostable bags in the mix with their compost because if it's a small facility, their facilities probably aren't heating their compost up. They're probably just letting it sit there and do it naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those bags take way, way longer to break down in that kind of environment.
0: Right. So we're about a month away from the New York City ban on plastic bags. Single, I mean, wh- what do you call them? Single-use plastic bags?
3: Single-use plastic bags, yeah. And So these are like the, the t-shirt bags that you would get at the grocery store. Right.
0: So all this is going to be mood, right? We're going we're gonna to be okay. <laughs> we're not going to have well, a plastic so, problem.
3: Right. <laughs> that would be great. Um, so yeah, this is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, March 1st is when this goes into effect. It does not apply to trash bags. It doesn't apply to... Um, packaging for meat, stuff like that, that will also have plastic in it. Um, This is purely consumer stuff. So um, anywhere where you can basically bring your own bag to put your own groceries in, it applies to those kinds of places.
0: So my last question is, do you have a recommendation for my wife who has hundreds of plastic bags underneath our sink uh, looking to be used in some meaningful way?
3: (laughs) Great question. Um, So all of these stores that currently give out plastic bags are required to collect them for Mm -hmm. recycling. So say your wife wants to recycle these bags. She can take them to your local Rite Aid, local Christidis, something like that. They should have a donation bin somewhere in the store.
0: Cool. This has been really educational Phoebe. Thanks for joining us.
3: Sure thing. Happy to be here.
0: And I want to remind our audience that you can ask us a question uh, a number of different ways. You can email us at, pod of the planet at gmail.com you can tweet at us at the earth institute or at pod planet you can facebook us you can dm us through instagram you can even stalk us whatever you want to do we're here to answer your questions and see you next time phoebe